The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Follow along with me. We're in our third message through this series in Revelation, and today we're in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Again, this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Let's listen to God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, ask for God's help as we encounter his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you um, humbling ourselves. We need you, we are desperate for you, we are dependent upon you, Uh, especially, Lord, we need to hear your word. So we come confessing our our weakness, our need, our sin. Lord, we look to Christ for forgiveness, for acceptance, and uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us uh, clear sight, open ears, and humble hearts to hear your word, and that we would be encouraged We would even be chastened where we need to be, uh, and we would be transformed, God, for your glory and for our joy in you. Uh, So we pray for help, and we trust that it will come. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine somehow Jesus explicitly came this morning to speak with us. What would that be like? It would be awesome. We know that John had a vision of, of Jesus, as we saw in the last chapter, and he fell over as if he was dead. <laughs> it would be awesome. It would be encouraging, right? Wouldn't it be so deeply encouraging to hear of Jesus' love and to, and to hear his perfect wisdom for our time? Oh, to hear him would be so encouraging. It would also be, I'm afraid, a bit exposing would expose us. You know he would be honest and tell the truth in a way that cuts, right? His mouth has a sword. It would cut. And we would in some way be exposed. But either way, it would be defining. We would know in a deeper way who we are and where we stand with him. We would know if we were moving with him, towards him, or if we were drifting away. 
So I can't stand here and say I know precisely what Jesus would say to us specifically if he explicitly visited us this morning. But isn't it true that in a very real way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we submit ourselves to God's word, Jesus is here and speaking with us even this morning? And can't we expect that it would be encouraging that it would expose and that it would be defining for who we are with him. Well, we're studying through the book of Revelation and in the next two chapters, we get to hear Jesus speak to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. These are seven literal churches from Asia Minor in the late first century and he says to them exactly what they need to hear in their specific moment. And... The fact that there's seven churches, the fact that all churches heard each letter to each church, shows us that what Jesus says to them is, of course, what he's saying to all his churches living in the time between his resurrection and his return. So as we hear Jesus speak to them, yes, we are hearing him speak to us. So just remember, last week we saw the author, the Apostle John. He's a partner with us in the family of God, the kingdom of Christ, and endurance through tribulation. He is in this experience with us and has been commissioned as a prophet for us. He gives us this view, this revelation of Jesus Christ that we need in order to patiently endure tribulation as faithful witnesses for him. So we're going to begin Christ's messages to these seven churches this morning. As we begin these messages to these churches, uh, it's both interesting and important to note that all seven of these messages to these churches follow the same basic pattern. And I think we can recognize seven basic ingredients to this pattern, and we want to identify those and remember those so we can understand what's going on. So let me give you this pattern. I think there's seven aspects to it. Number one, each address begins with a declaration of who Jesus is. Each address looks back to this vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So we see him again, and we learn that who he is uniquely meets our present need. This is so important. We have needs, we have flaws, we are broken, and the fix is always to look at Jesus, to look at Jesus. So each address starts with a declaration of who Jesus is. Second, every church will then hear about the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus will then say, I know, I know, I know. So we wanna to listen to the one who knows. Number three, most churches will get some encouragement from Jesus. He will say to them, great job. He will praise his people for ways they're being Faithful. Six out of seven churches get encouragement. So we've got the, the declaration of who Jesus is. We hear about his knowledge. We get encouragement. Number four, most churches also get a rebuke from Jesus, something they need to change. In fact, all but two churches get a rebuke, which is just a reminder. Churches aren't perfect. We need to constantly be looking to Jesus and hear his word so that we can reform towards him. Be more faithful to him. 
So we get a declaration of who Jesus is, the knowledge of Jesus, encouragement from Jesus, a rebuke from Jesus, and number five, all churches receive a calling from Jesus. This is what I want you to do to follow me faithfully, Jesus will say. Number six, most churches will get a consequence from Jesus. All but two, they get a consequence. This is what will happen, Jesus says, if you won't repent. This is what will happen if you persist in disobedience. Hear the consequence, be warned. And finally, number seven, all churches receive a promise. There's a promise Jesus gives for those who conquer, those who follow him faithfully, no matter the cost. Jesus will say to them, it's worth it. It's infinitely worth it. So those are our seven aspects. Declaration of who Jesus is, his knowledge, his encouragement, his rebuke, a calling, a consequence, and a promise. So this morning, this means my sermon will have eight brief points, okay? Number one, I want to give you a background to this city where this church um, lives. That's important for understanding the context of what's going on and even our context today. So background, and then we'll walk through the seven aspects of Jesus' message to the churches. So let's begin. First of all, background. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 1, we know Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus. And we learn as we study that the church of Ephesus was a headquarters, a cultural center devoted to idol worship. A cultural center devoted to idol worship. So first of all, Ephesus was a prominent city in the ancient world, prominent economically, prominent Politically, it had the greatest harbor of Asia Minor. Four important highways led into the city, bringing commerce and trade. It was important and influential. And man, this city was passionate about its idol worship. In the middle of the city is a temple to Artemis, known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 260 feet wide, covered one and a half city blocks made of shining marble, 130 columns, 60 feet high. It's incredible. It's impressive. And the Ephesians were massively proud of their temple. Read the text from Acts 19 uh, and see when Paul is uh, planning his church in Ephesus and see their passion for their temple. It was a cultural center for them with holidays and festivals. It's a hub for business. Ephesus became, uh, the, the temple of Artemis became one of the largest banks in the ancient world. It was a center for religious tourism. The sale of idols was lucrative. So it was also a promoter of a certain kind of lifestyle. The temple of Artemis was built uh, around an ancient tree shrine. This tree would be on coins sometimes, symbolizing the fruitful life that can be found in, in following Artemis. It was also a refuge for the worst criminals. If someone committed a crime, no matter how bad it was, and he reached the precincts of the temple before he was arrested, he was safe as long as he needed. And so the city became a gathering place for the worst of the worst. And historians tell us that temple worship here was unhinged. 
There would be a musical hysteria and a celebration and practice of every variety of sexual deviation, ritual prostitution, physical mutilation, emasculation, all in this worship to this goddess. The ancient historian Heraclitus supposedly said, the morals of the temple worship was worse than the morals of animals. So this is what we're seeing. Ephesus is this powerful cultural center devoted to idolatry and the lifestyle it would bring. And this is where, in the middle of all that mess, the church of Ephesus was planted and thriving. We can imagine, can't we? It was a hard place to be a Christian. And to worship Artemis was to be Ephesian. All the cultural pressure would be to live in a certain way. And so to be a Christian was to go directly against that flow. It would not be easy. And it just reminds us, right? This is what tribulation looks like. John says, I'm your partner in the tribulation. Tribulation is that pressure Christians face in a broken world that's hostile to Jesus as king. It's going to be hard. And that was the context for this church in Ephesus. Now we get to Jesus' sevenfold message to this church. Number one, the declaration. Jesus introduces himself again to his church. Verse one, to the angel of church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We remember who this is. It's the words of him. The words of who? Jesus, the Lord of all, the Lord of his church. We are to remember here verses like Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. We remember he was the faithful witness, the ultimate witness. He lived and spoke the truth. It got him across. He took it to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns as the firstborn, the king of all. And he's the beginning of God's new creation, which will come. He reigns now over kings, over all nations. Revelation 1.17, Jesus said, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God with sovereign control over all things. The first and the last. He's the resurrected one, which means he has the authority, the control over eternal life. We are accountable to him. He's the Lord of all. And the Lord of all is the Lord, he says, of his churches. He's the Lord of his people. You know, these images in verse 1 where you have Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand or walking among the seven lampstands, these are symbols that show us who Jesus is to us and who we are to him. The fact that he holds these stars in his right hand, it shows us he's the king. He's in control. Uh, what did it mean, seven stars in his right hand? Revelation 1.20. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So we've said this is a picture of our heavenly identity. It's the idea, right, angels uh, serve and care for God's people, but they also worship in God's presence. And so it's this idea that we are known, we are remembered. We're in his hand, we're protected. We have a king, a ruler, a shepherd. He's our king who holds us values us, knows us, cares for us. 
This also shows us that Jesus is our priest, right? The lampstands would be uh, burning in the temple with the, with the light of the Lord. And so Jesus says the churches, we are his lampstands. We are his temple on earth. We are God's presence here. And he's our priest, the one who speaks to us, the one who um, intercedes for us, the one who offered himself up for us, the one who cultivate us, cultivates us so that we can shine for his glory. This is who's speaking to us. And I think what the Ephesians were supposed to see and what we're supposed to see is that Jesus is so grand and so great and so mighty that he makes the powerful, influential city of Ephesus look very, very small. If you're a Christian at this time and you're in Ephesus, oh, the cultural pressure and power of Artemis worship and all that that meant for society could be so intimidating until you looked at Jesus. Until you saw the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Until you saw his sovereign reign. Until you remembered his his care for you. That he holds you in his hand. That he walks among you. Then you'd see things in perspective. The, The pressure of the culture gets smaller. And the light of Christ gets brighter. You remember what you're about. You remember who you are. So important that we see Jesus. That's the declaration. The Lord of all is Lord of his churches. Number two, we hear of Jesus' knowledge. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 2, I know, I know. We remember here uh, what John showed us in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus has eyes of fire, which those, that symbolizes his all-knowing, holy attention. Jesus is saying to his churches, you, you are on my mind and I am completely aware of your situation. I know exactly what it's like and I'm completely aware of you. I know you all the way down. I know what you're hiding. I see through your excuses. I know what you're about. I know what you need. I know how to take you where you need to go. I know. It's good for us to just meditate on for a moment. Jesus knows what it's like. Have you been groaning to him? Lord, do you see? Do you see what this is like? Yeah, he sees. He knows. In fact, he sees you better than you see yourself. He knows deeply what we need. And so this is just an invitation as we see who he is, Lord of all, who knows. It's this invitation to get ready to listen. Listen, listen. This is the one to whom we need to listen. And so then as Jesus speaks, this church gets to hear his encouragement. That's where we are now, his encouragement. Look at verses 2 to 3. In verses 2 to 3, we see Jesus, I think, praising the Ephesian church for two main things. They are faithful in action and they are faithful in doctrine. Faithful in action and faithful in doctrine. So look at their action, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. So the works, that's about deeds. They are doing things in service to the Lord. Their toil, that means they work hard. This was their blood and their sweat, their effort. It wasn't casual. They weren't just uh, audience members looking, watching from a distance. They were involved. And not only that, they persevered, patient endurance. They kept going when times were hard. These were not flaky people. These were not people who showed up once and then quit. They were after it consistently, faithfully. And the Lord praises them for that. I see it. It's so encouraging, isn't it? You've been serving the Lord. You wonder if anybody sees it. You wonder if it's worth it. Jesus says to you, I see. 
I see, I value this. I encourage you for this. So he praises them for their faithfulness in their action. He also praises them for their faithfulness in their doctrine. And I think that's actually the main emphasis here, their faithfulness in their doctrine. What is doctrine? It's kind of a churchy word. Doctrine, right, is the standard of what we believe as Christians. Uh, this, this, these are the things that, that are the, the proclamations, the, the aspects of truth that Christians must hold to in order to be Christians. This is what makes us who we are. And obviously, we could talk a long time about the distinctives of Christian doctrine, the things that are most important. But I want to draw our attention to three doctrinal fundamentals here that are important for this text, uh, just for under, important for understanding Christianity. Three doctrinal fundamentals. Number one, the ultimate, the first doctrinal fundamental is that the Bible is the inspired word of God and is our ultimate authority for life and doctrine. The Bible is our authority. Read, read 2 Timothy 3 later on today and see how Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. This is the issue of our day. This was the issue of the Ephesians' day. What is our authority? How do we know why we're here and how we should live? How are human beings to understand what's wrong with us, how it, get fi- how it gets fixed, where we ought to go? What are we here for? What's our design? How do we know? Christians know the authority on this. The trustworthy authority is God's word. There is no Christian doctrine without that fundamental foundation. The Bible is our authority. Two, another uh, fundamental doctrinal foundation for Christians. The Bible itself uh, culminates in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible itself culminates in Jesus. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. He's the son of God who became a man, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, reigns now. All this is according to the promise of the scriptures. He's the Christ God has promised from before. And through him, his grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved from our sins and redeemed as children of God. Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 that which is of first importance. Jesus said, I fulfill all the scriptures. And so this second fundamental foundation is our reliance on the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to be saved in him, by him, and him alone. A third, I think, fundamental for doctrine is that salvation brings transformation. Salvation brings transformation. Church, if you've been with us for long, we we went through 1 John uh, not very long ago. And we saw, right? Um, We saw things that can bring assurance that you're actually a Christian. We saw evidences that that you know you belong to Christ. And, And one of those was love for one another. Another one was love for God and obedience to his commands. But this this all just added up to the reality that when Jesus is your Savior, he is also your Lord. And your life is going to be, not perfectly, not all at once, but progressively conformed to Christ's image as you follow his word. This is a fundamental for Christian doctrine. uh, This is a supernatural thing to know Jesus, and it changes our lives. So these fundamentals, the Bible is our authority. It culminates in the gospel of Jesus 
And salvation brings transformation. So important for our day and for the Ephesians. Because you see, as this text shows us, the Ephesians had false apostles coming in with a warped doctrine. They were claiming to be Christian, but denying what it meant to be a Christian. Change uh, what our authority is for how we live. They bring a new authority, their own. They change it, they make a different way to be saved. It's not Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And they would change, certainly change, a different way to live out the faith. Oh, you don't need to follow God's commands in that way. Do this instead. And Jesus praises the Ephesians because they wanted nothing to do with this. They knew the gospel so well that they would test those who call themselves apostles by the fundamentals of Christian doctrine and find them to be false. And they would, they would reject, they, they cannot bear with those who are evil. Jesus says, I praise you for that. Good job. Verse 3, they endure patiently in this and bear up for his namesake. That's amazing. You know, to bear up means to like intentionally take on a challenge, even though it's going to be rough. And they saw this false doctrine coming into the church, and they they bore up and said, no, 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 we can't allow this. We've got to stand for what's true. And why did they do it, Jesus said? For his namesake. They love the glory of Jesus that only Christian doctrine proclaims. And he's just too precious to let him go, to let that precious doctrine go. And so they were willing to bear up for his glory, and Jesus praises them for it. They were faithful in, in action and they were faithful in doctrine. Uh, Jesus loved this about them so much, even after his rebuke. Verse 6, he, he adds another praise. Verse 6, look at this. Yet this you have, Jesus says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, we're not exactly sure what these folks taught, but we do get a hint uh, in Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. Look at Revelation 2. 14 to 15, just to learn about what the Nicolaitans uh, probably taught. Revelation 2, 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Hmm. So basically, the message of these folks was probably this. They were saying Christians can compromise with the idolatrous aspects of their surrounding culture and not worry about it. The Nicolaitans said, you can like Jesus and join the world in their idol worship and sexual deviancy. Now, why would this be an attractive teaching? Because frankly, it's hard to stand out. It's hard to not do what everybody's doing. It's hard to say the prevailing culture's wrong. It's hard to stand alone. It brings suffering, it brings insult. This is part of what tribulation is all about. And so the Nicolaitans were finding a way to experience less tribulation by compromising doctrine and behavior. And the Ephesian church saw this and said, no way. They hated the teaching. Church, I want to ask you, do you hate teaching like that that tells you to compromise Jesus? 
tells you to compromise what he calls for for your life in his word. Why would we hate it? Are we haters? I hope it's because we're lovers. We don't ever want to hate things just because we like to hate. The only good reason to hate things is because you really love the opposite. If you love the glory of Jesus and who he is, you're going to hate anything that demeans that. What, do you love the glory of God and his design for marriage and sexuality? Do you see what sexual rebellion does to people and societies? Do you hate the damage it causes in people's lives? Do you hate um, God's things that bring God's anger and his wrath? Do you love the beauty of how he's designed us according to his word? The Ephesians loved God's glory and they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And it's amazing to hear Jesus say he hates their teaching too. You, it's interesting, isn't it? Did you know there's things that Jesus hates? Number one, there are. And did you know that there's teaching Jesus hates? There's teaching Jesus hates. There's teaching that claims to be Christian that Jesus hates. So let's wrap this up. Jesus encourages this church for their faithfulness in action and their faithfulness in doctrine. Now here we need to ask ourselves as a community, what would he say about us? What would he say about us? You need to ask yourself as an individual, what would he say about you? Are you still active in service to Jesus? Is it still, is it in your schedule? Is it a part of your time? Moreover, are you faithful in doctrine? Do you love the truth of God according to his word? Do you love the gospel? And because you love that, do you hate things that corrupt that, demean that, deny that? And are you willing to stand out in believing and standing for God's truth? Jesus would encourage you to the extent that you are. And he would warn you to the extent that you're not. So that's the encouragement. Jesus also has a rebuke. So here we are, number four in our paradigm to this church. Number four, the rebuke. Look at verse four. Jesus rebukes this church in verse four. And he says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What's it mean to abandon? Abandon feels like betrayal, doesn't it? That kind of a word. It's this idea that there was something really value and really, really valuable and really important that you needed to stay near, that you need to keep strong, that you need to hold tight to, that you should never leave. And you left it. You abandoned it. There's, it's, it, there's a tragedy to this, a sadness to this. You've abandoned something. And what was it that they abandoned? Love, some sort of love they had at first. So we wonder, what is this love specifically that they've abandoned? And you know, commentators aren't on the same page when it comes to interpreting this. Uh, some say this love is a fundamental love from the heart for the Lord himself, a love of God. Others say it's practical love for one another in the church, a love of service, hospitality, welcome. Uh, more, others say, it's love for their neighbor, the outsider, and especially in the sense that the church has quit sharing the gospel. Well, of course, all these things are intimately connected, right? Uh, it's intimately connected. Um, 
the, the way and the reason we love our neighbor is because we love God. And if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. Um, so it's not that we can totally separate these three things. Here's what we do know, though. We know that somehow in their love for the truth, the Ephesians forgot the truth about love. Remember, these people love the truth. Jesus praised them for that. But somehow in their love for truth, they forgot the truth about love. You know, in polemical times, times of controversy, it is kind of easy to forget to love. The more you debate, argue with someone, does that build your love for them every time? The constant fight for truth can kind of calcify your heart to the point where you forget the purpose of truth, which is a deep and true love for God and neighbor. Somehow it is easy for us to love truth in a lopsided way. It's easy for us, right, to want to love so much that we sideline the truth. But it's also easy for us to love the truth so much that we sideline love. We're confused and broken people. And the fight for truth can even distract us sometimes for a warm love for God or love for others. And it makes those who disagree with us feel like enemies to be rejected rather than people to be loved. So we have to ask ourselves a question here. Church, brother, sister, how's your pulse on love right now? Love. Do you love Jesus this morning? Are you thrilled by his grace for you in the gospel? Is your heart melted by the reality that Jesus came for you, lived for you, died for you, rose for you, so that as you trust in him, you're forgiven. You're made a child of God. Do you love him? Are you amazed by his love? Or if you've forgotten the truth about love and your love for the truth? What about love for one another? You know, despite the conflict of this time, I want to I ask you, do you still love your local church? We've been separated in a way. Did the absence make your heart grow fonder? Have you become fine with kind of excuses to not connect with church community? You realize how dangerous that is? 1 Peter 1.22, the apostle says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So if we've been separated a little bit, or if there's been uh, things that are easy to argue about or disagree on, and people see things in different ways, did you forget that Jesus' command to you is that you would earnestly love your brothers and your sisters? How's your pulse on love for your brothers and your sisters? Or number three, do you still love your neighbor to the point where you're actually sharing the gospel someone with someone? Has this difficult cultural moment got you clamming up to where your posting, your debating is about everything other than a winsome conversation with somebody who knows you care about them so that you can persuade them and explain to them the news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done? Did you love the truth so much? That you forgot the truth 
about love. I think this third one is probably what is on Jesus' mind in talking to the Ephesians. I think he's talking about love for neighbor that leads to evangelism. So we'll now look at verse five, the calling. Jesus says, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Do you see how in verse five here, he focuses on works? So that leads me to think the major challenge is not their love for God or even love for one another because what did we see him praise them for? They were active, right, for the kingdom. And they were faithful in believing the doctrine. Maybe then the works they forgot were to love the outsider around them to the point where they wanted to share the gospel. And this can make sense, can it? Ephesian city was a hostile culture for Christians. And the more and more you feel hostility from them, the more and more you'll want to say, hey, they're an enemy. The less and less you'll want to connect, the less and less you'll be vulnerable, the less and less you'll be open to a conversation. And Jesus says, maybe, remember the works you did at first where you were so moved by what I did for you to save you that you were sharing that with others. You were sharing the gospel. Let me show you uh, maybe a possible parallel passage from Matthew 24. Verses 9 to 13. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14. I think you'll see parallels here with the context in Revelation. Matthew 24, verse 9. They will deliver you up to what? Tribulation. And put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Verse 10. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Boy, it sounds just like revelation. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, what will happen? The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's it look like to endure to the end? Verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so we see here from Jesus' words, in times of tribulation, a major work of love is telling the nations about Jesus. And so, at any rate, the calling is clear, Jesus' calling. Let's repent of our lack of love. Let's look to see where our love for the truth has somehow led us to forget the truth about love. And let's repent. Let's remember the love of God for us that we love and trust through and in the truth of God. And let that turn into warm love for him, for one another, and for our neighbor, especially in evangelism. It's very serious because now we get to part six, the consequence, the consequence. Look at verse five. If not, if not what? If you don't repent, if you don't remember, if you don't do the works you used to, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is, this is incredible. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Love or die. Love or die. Love or I will personally close your church. <laughs> That's mind-boggling. Churches close all the time. 
did you know that Jesus closes churches? Jesus actually says, and ends the life of that local church. Wow. What does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean that real Christians lose their salvation. No way, no how. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Revelation says. No, real, true Christians who trust Christ, they're not perfect, they're flawed, but they're going to grow. They're going to continue to repent and grow in obedience and love. They will. They'll make it until the end. It does mean that Jesus closes churches. And a church, Jesus says, that won't love will die. And you can see why. Our love for God is the whole point. Our love for one another is proof that we love God. Our love for neighbor is at the heart of the great commission to share the gospel. If we don't love as God's people, what are we? What are we? So let's remember the core of the truth that we love. That God has loved us in the gospel. And his love for us in the gospel ought to transform us. So that we are full of love for him, for one another, and for our neighbor. Let's remember and repent. Look again at Jesus' love for you in the cross. Humble yourself before him. Trust him. Be inspired again with love. And then act on that. Now we get to number seven, the promise. The promise. Number seven we find in Revelation 2, 7. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to you to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 7, it sounds just like Jesus in the Gospels, doesn't it? Didn't he say this all the time? He who has an ear, let him hear. He loved to say that. And what it means is take these words to heart. Take them seriously. Percolate in them like water and coffee, like Soak it in, meditate on it, ponder it, let it hit your heart. And I think Jesus is saying, don't you dare let yourself walk away after that pondering without putting it into practice. Put it into practice. And so we should each just pause and ask ourselves here, by the Holy Spirit, what is God saying to you right now through this text? What's, what's pushing on your conscience where in this text do you see yourself disjointed? Maybe it's a lack of activity for his kingdom. You've been apathetic, you're an outsider, you need to get plugged in. Maybe you're not standing for doctrine, or you've got questions about doctrine. Don't just stay there, seek it out. Write me, ask questions. I'd love to talk to you about anything. Um, find the boldness to stand for truth. Do you see how his truth is beautiful and love itself? But make an action. Find, and, and, most importantly, in, in this context, what about your love? Do you love God? Do you love his people? Do you love the nations that need to hear the gospel? Follow me, Jesus says. Look at me. Come to me. I want to make your lamp glow. I want to set you on fire. I hold you in my hand. I want to build you up. Come on, verse 7, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To conquer, it, it means to be, be victorious. It means to cross the finish line having won, having made it. In Revelation, it means to endure tribulation as a faithful witness until you're dead, no matter the cost. Faithful in action, faithful in doctrine, faithful in love. And Jesus says, if you conquer, 
I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Oh, what does the word paradise mean? It's hard to define it because it feels better than the words I can say. But it's something like, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's blissful. You're safe. You're loved. You love you see the beauty of the glory of God and you're there with his people. I want you in paradise, Jesus says. I'm promising you paradise and there you can eat the tree of life. Now, biblically, we remember, right, in the Garden of Eden where we were kicked out due to our sin, there was a tree of life there. You know, you see that same reference at the end of Revelation. We get to go to this garden city, this paradise, where there's the tree of life and we're eating it. It's a symbol, right, of, of the abundant life we'll have together with God. But you know, it's also, a, it's also an insult to idolatry. Do you remember how the temple of Artemis was built around this tree shrine? And Jesus is saying... I am the one who gives you everything the idols promise but can't deliver on. I'm infinitely better than Artemis. And so he's saying to the Ephesians, man, that's, that's a dead end. That's death. Come to me. In order to give them courage, look to me. Follow me. Be mine. And it gives us encouragement as well for our day. For our day. Hold close to Jesus. Be faithful in action. Be faithful in doctrine. Faithful in love. Despite any cultural pressure, let's be faithful. As we love the truth, let's make sure we love in truth. With a heart for the Lord, committed to one another. Sharing the gospel with our neighbor. Supporting its spread in the world. And do this patiently, even in tribulation. Even in any suffering it brings. Because this is is the road to paradise. It will be infinitely worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard the words of your Son from your scriptures this morning. Lord, forgive me for any error I have made in teaching it, and let the truth and the truth only stand out beautifully and stand out clearly in, in the hearts and minds of all who hear. And Lord, I pray that no one could go away from this word, myself included, without one thing, one thing we know we need to adjust. We need to change. We need to, we need to move towards you in being more faithful. Lord, if anybody's not a Christian and they're listening to this, I pray that you would draw them to trust Christ, maybe even for the first time, that they would believe upon him and know that they belong to him and want to live for him. And Lord, for all your people who, who have known you already, Lord, please forgive us for our sin. Enable us to repent in the way you're calling us to repent. And let us grow, Lord, in our, our faithful action for your kingdom, our doctrinal faithfulness and standing for what you've said and its beauty for your glory, and our faithfulness to love, to love you from the heart, to love our brothers and sisters, to love our neighbor to the point where we will actually share the gospel with them. We pray that you would do this in us for your glory as we shine like a lamp and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www. 
folfcrc.com.